Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Well, good morning, church. <laughs> I'm Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. Today is the third Sunday of the month, and so, if we have any kids in here ages 5 through 5th grade, you can be dismissed to the back. They're going to go downstairs, be in their peer group, and they're actually going to learn the same things we're going to learn in here. It's the exact same stuff. It's beautiful. So they'll be back after the sermon. We do this the first and the third Sunday of the month. So bye. Bye, kiddos. I have a question for you. What do you suppose you could discover or learn about God if you've never read the Bible or you've never interacted with somebody who has? If it's just you in this world and yourself, and as you observe this world around you, what do you think you could learn about God? Theologians call this natural theology. What what could you learn? Maybe maybe it's the design of this world, how how the cosmos are ordered, and so we can even have science in the first place. And it might point us to a sort of creating or governing power that originally formed the universe and now keeps the universe from devolving into chaos, maybe maybe that's what we observe. This creating power might then be infinite, and maybe we can learn something about it since everything else is ordered. Or, Or maybe it's the fact that beauty exists. Have you thought about that one? The fact that we can observe and appreciate beauty in and of itself. That maybe this power has created such beauty, and maybe this power itself is beautiful. That some sort of intentional and aesthetic quality is a part of such a power. Or maybe we look inside our own hearts and we notice that there's this universal human impulse to worship something. And that maybe lead us, leads us to suspect there's some sort of power worthy of this worship, an object to our desire. Something that actually exists and designed us to worship, so to speak. Or maybe just the fact that there is such a thing as morality. That seems to be universal among humanity. It varies a little bit culture to culture, granted, but there's still this universal thought of morality, what's right and what's wrong. And it might point us to a power outside of ourself that made right right and made wrong wrong. These things and many other ways we could use to discern outside of ourselves and from inside ourselves who this power might be if there is a God at least if we're thoughtful and we're reflective. But, but not all things about God can be discerned through natural theology, can they? Nature can give us a sense of his existence, power, beauty, worthy of worship, morality. But if we pick up on these clues, we are still only left with, crudely, something like this. A beautiful power that's worthy of our worship that decides what's right and what's wrong. Yet we still have no idea how to relate to this power, to this God. Maybe we discern that God exists, but now what? We still don't really know who this God is, nor do we know what it means for us. 
And what do we do with these things the Psalms have touched on so far throughout this summer, common to our human condition? Our joy, our pain, agony, injustice, guilt, and on and on and on and on. Does God know any of this? Does God even care about these things? Or more pointedly, how do we then live in relation to this God, assuming he exists? Here, natural theology can't help us. But Psalm 32 can. But it does so in a backdoor kind of way. You see, rather than asking the question, how do we then live? Psalm 32 primarily asks this question. Who is this God? And by answering that question, we then learn how to live, how to relate to God. Does that make sense? Complete silence. If we primarily focus on us, and how we are supposed to live, we miss the point, and we start to fall into legalism. But if we focus on God, and he is our focus, then from him everything else falls into place. I think we're going to see how this works out here. Our psalm this morning is going to celebrate something about God that's not discernible through nature. Yet it is immensely important In fact, it is fundamental to our understanding of this God, and our very salvation depends on it. And yet, it may be one of the least intuitive, true things about God. So what is it? Let's read about it. Open up your Bible to Psalm 32, or swipe and click your way there. Psalm 32. We're going to read verses 1 through 2, and we're going to discover what is this core character trait about God that we're going to celebrate this morning. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So what is that fundamental character trait? It's fundamentally this. Our God is forgiving. Our God is a forgiving God. This is crucial and essential to our understanding of God's character that we have got to understand. So let's appreciate how this happened so far in Psalm 32, God's forgiveness. So for emphasis, three words here are used to describe sin, and three different words are also used to describe the act of forgiving that sin. Sin is described as transgression, sin, and iniquity. And the three words used for forgiving are forgiven, covered, and not counted. This incredible comprehensiveness of God's forgiveness is in view here. Just consider what God's forgiveness can cover. The Hebrew behind these words is colorful and it's full of imagery. So I want to show you a little bit about this. Let's use the words transgression, forgiven, sin. Verse 1. Our transgression is a rebellion against God's perfect rule as king over this universe. God set up his perfect law, and yet we have decided to not obey it. So as a result, we figuratively weigh ourselves down with burden and guilt of this rebellion. And what is God's response? He forgives us, or literally carries our sin, our burden, and this weight. In verse 1, God carries it, not us. Here's another piece of imagery. Our sin 
verse 1, last line, is like an arrow that we shot at a bullseye, but we missed. By our folly, we shot at but missed God's perfect will for how we're to live. And anything other than a bullseye is sin. It's just not acceptable. We miss the mark. Yet verse 1 tells us our sin is covered. When God forgives, he forgives all of this, no matter how you want to visualize this. He doesn't just forgive the unintentional sins. And we need the Bible to know this in the first place, don't we? It's incomprehensible, but it is a glorious fact. Our God is a forgiving God. How great is our God? The implications of this and just how wonderful it all is is going to be teased out now as it goes through Psalm 32. But I want us to see two tremendous ramifications for us first. First, because God is a forgiving God, we are blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Think about this. Our blessedness is directly tied to God's greatness, which in large part is demonstrated by his ability and willingness to forgive our sin. Does that make sense? Our blessedness, true happiness, does not stem from what we achieve or what we avoid or what we clean up but from the very character and action of God himself. God's greatness is the grounds for our blessedness. You see, apart from God, you and I, we cannot muster up our own blessedness, our own happiness, so to speak. We can't simply work hard enough. We can't just say the right words, but not the wrong words. Just support the right organizations and boycott the wrong ones. We don't just live in the right city or have the right friend group or contribute to society and be nice and then expect to be blessed. This isn't karma, where if you just throw out in the universe good things, you can expect them to receive them back. God's greatness and God's greatness alone is the ground for all blessing, whether it's common blessing available to all that reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous, or whether it's a special, deeper sense of blessing that God reserves for his very own people, those he calls as his own. The psalm later is going to describe these people as the godly, the righteous, and the upright in heart. God's greatness, as seen in him forgiving our sin, is the grounds for our blessedness. There's a second ramification. Look at the last line of verse 2. It reads this, And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Because God is a forgiving God, we then rid ourselves of deceit. Now remember when we said that we first asked the question, who is this God? And then we can ask and answer the question, how do we live? Well, this is the point in the psalm where it starts to turn a little bit. It starts to answer that second question. So in light of God being a forgiving God, how do we then relate to him? How do we then live? We rid ourselves of deceit. But why? Why? And what does Psalm 32 even mean by that? Well, let's read on to figure it out. Verses 3 through 4. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. See, deceit in the context of this psalm is hiding from God our sin. 
of pretending or lying to God that we have no sin when in fact we do. The first line of verse 3 makes this connection for us. Therefore, since our God is a forgiving God, we do not try to hide our sin from him. The very thing that needs to be forgiven. Yet we do this all the time, don't we? What a twisted aspect of fallen humanity this is. Rather than confessing our sin before a good and forgiving God who can carry its weight for us, we attempt to conceal it, essentially trying to deceive him into thinking that we are good when in fact we are not. Why do we do this? Because we're embarrassed by the sin? It's because we don't believe that the sin is actually a big deal in the first place? Maybe we don't believe that God is who he says he is, that he's a forgiving God. Or maybe it's out of a sense of shame. We're ashamed of our sin. This feeling of shame was a motivator for the first humans, Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Remember that story? They sinned and then they hid from God from shame. They ran from the very God they knew intimately, the only one they knew who could truly forgive and heal them. And aren't we still doing that today? Nothing's changed the generations. In our attempts to deceive God, we actually only deceive ourselves into thinking there's a different solution to the weight of our sin. We know it's sin, but yet we still attempt to cover it, whether it's just keeping quiet about it, or it's enforcing some sort of penance upon ourselves. Like maybe we give a little more on the offering plate that week to soothe our conscience. Or trying to convince ourselves that sin isn't a big deal in the first place because it's not as bad as this or that person. It's relative. But the consequences of keeping our sins silent can be devastating. Listen to how Psalm 32 describes how it feels to keep silent. My bones wasted away through my groaning or literally roaring all day long. My strength dried up as by the heat of summer. The consequences of keeping silent about our sin are continuous, and they're heavy, and they're life-sapping. And Psalm 32 attributes these consequences to the heavy hand of God. What? We, just two verses earlier, we're celebrating the fact of God's greatness as expressed by his forgiveness for us. And yet here, God's causing weakness? Where'd all the blessedness go? Like, we want that again, right? Oh, but it is exactly here. God's greatness is not only expressed by his forgiveness, but also a step logically prior to that, of him leading us to confess our sin in the first place. You see, it's only by God's grace that he would not allow us to become comfortable with our sin, but would rather force such discomfort upon us that we stop our games of silence and deception. It's by God's grace that we're prompted to confess our sin and then experience the blessedness of being forgiven by such a great God. Exactly what happens in the psalm. Let's read verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So here we see the full explanation of that second ramification of God being a forgiving God. Ridding ourselves of deceit 
is confessing our sin to God. Notice here, again, it's the same three words for sin and the same three words for forgive that we saw earlier in verses 1 through 2, but here it's in the context of confessing our sin. This greatly emphasizes these verses and provides a little bit of closure. Exactly what was described up above in verses 1 through 2 that makes this person blessed earlier is now exactly here happening. The very thing that elicits forgiveness from this great God and makes us blessed is the confession of our sin. All of it. And what was God's response? He forgave. But he didn't just forgive some of it. So catch this. The iniquity of my sin here is literally a compound word in the Hebrew that all it does is it mashes together the word for iniquity and the word for sin and just puts them together. So it's like sin hyphen iniquity. Or it's a new word, you just call it sin iniquity. One word. See, the fact is that God forgave everything. He carried all of it for us. And it's because of this glorious fact that the confessor of the sin can now be considered blessed. Is it starting to sink in at all? Who is this God? He's a great God who forgives sin. How are we then to live? We confess our sin to him. In fact, our God is so great and so gracious that he doesn't allow us to remain comfortable with our sin, but rather makes us uncomfortable in order to lead us to confession so that God himself may forgive us and making it, and making it possible for us to be blessed instead. Let me say that again. This is the summary so far of this passage. And this is the gospel. We're going to hear this every week in this church, so don't assume we don't need to hear it again. This is glorious truth. This is worth celebrating. Let me read this again. Our God is so great and so gracious, he doesn't allow us to remain comfortable with our sin, but rather he makes us uncomfortable in order to lead us to confession that God himself may forgive us and carry the weight of our sin for us making it possible for us to be considered blessed instead. What other God is like this? Do you know another one that's like this? Does your money offer to forgive you of your sin? Believe me, no matter how much of it you give away, you can't buy true forgiveness. Does your education offer to carry the weight of your sin for you? No matter how smart you are, or how much you contribute to society, or how massaged your ego becomes, you can't educate yourself past the need for a real Savior who can really forgive you. Does finding happiness in the outdoors, in beer, and dogs, and bikes, and all these things that we're supposed to be happy about in Fort Collins, right? Does all that happiness forgive you? No matter how happy these things make you, they'll never bring you true happiness that, tr that comes through truly being forgiven. No other God is like our God. And think about the magnitude of what it meant for God to be this forgiving God. We have the New Testament, right? We know what God had to do to make it possible to be this forgiving God. God couldn't just write off our sin. He couldn't just forgive us and say, no big deal. God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, so payment had to be made for our sin, otherwise God would cease to be God. So, God sent his own son, Jesus, 
to literally carry our sin upon his shoulders as he was crucified and died the death that we all deserved for our sin. God himself covered our sin by paying the price for us. God himself carried our transgressions by dying the death that we deserved. And God himself took away our iniquity by bearing it himself. Hear this good news. If you trust Jesus to forgive you and to save you, you are no longer a dead sinner, but an alive saint. God takes away the guilt of our sin completely. These, these truths are all over the Bible. Here are two examples, other places. This is out of Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In the New Testament, the Apostle John writes this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus died so that you and me can live, so that we may be considered blessed those of us who trust him to save us. And here's the best part. Jesus did not stay dead. Silence. <laughs> Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again from the grave. He broke the power of death over us so we who are in relationship with him can live with him forever. This is the gospel. This is beautiful, isn't it? We need the Bible to know what the gospel is. We don't see this by looking at creation. I'm getting worked up. We have a great God indeed. God truly forgives us. He's made a way for us to be in relationship with him. Don't allow this to get old if you've heard this before. This marvelous fact made explicit in the New Testament touches on a theme here throughout Psalm 32 that's actually behind every single line. When we, when we voice our sin to our forgiving God, rather than concealing it or remaining quiet about it, we grow in intimacy with him. Intimacy is the theme here behind every line of this psalm. Can you, do you pick it up a little bit? Think about the impact of the deceit we saw in verse 2 upon intimacy. Deceit undermines intimacy in any relationship. Listen, God already knows us completely. He knows us thoroughly inside and out. Here's the question. Can we trust him to be the forgiving God that he says he is? This is a question of growing in intimacy with him. In previous psalms, we've already seen this overarching theme of intimacy over and over and over again. And in past sermons, we've heard different ways you can grow in intimacy. It's reading your Bible, it's prayer, being in Christian community, the other spiritual disciplines. But did you know that another spiritual discipline, an example of a spiritual discipline, is confession of our sin. Confessing our sin can be as simple as a prayer like this. God, please forgive me for fill in the blank. But we don't stop there, do we? We don't offer these confessions, but then continue in that sin intentionally, do we? The biblical concept of repentance also includes a turning from our sin. 
So by God's grace, we turn from our sin, and we turn to God to be healed. Does that make sense? The spiritual discipline of confession should be a regular practice of ours, not something we just do on Sunday mornings as a church. I need to grow here. Confession has not been a big part of my regular devotional rhythms, but it needs to be. It fosters intimacy between me and God, and it it provides me with healing. God heals. Is confession a regular part of your own devotional rhythms? And if not, why not? For me, as I reflect on possible reasons why it hasn't been a bigger part, I think one of the main reasons is actually quite insidious, and it will sound pretty ridiculous actually spoken out loud, but I'm going to do it anyway, okay? I think I too often, deep down, think I'm a pretty good person. Yes, I'm an alive saint that God has saved. That's a glorious truth. But yet I still sin. The insidious part is thinking I'm a saint that really doesn't sin all that much. That somehow my heart has dodged most of the effects of the fall back in the book of Genesis. That my depravity isn't total. But that simply isn't true. In reality, I'm an alive saint who's being mended by our glorious God, but who is still in need of much more mending in deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper ways. So for me, part of my devotional rhythm has become asking God to show me what are those areas in my heart that I need to confess so light can shine on them and they can be healed. And let me tell you, God is faithful in answering that prayer. And sometimes it hurts. <laughs> but at the same time, it is so healthy and good. And it builds and grows intimacy between me and God. The confession of our sin is a powerful in crucial way in which we grow in intimacy with God and trust God to be who he says he is. But please don't leave here this morning thinking that this sermon was just about adding another thing to your checklist. That if you just confess your sin a bit more, then you'll be a better Christian. While confession is important, remember, confession itself isn't the primary focus here. The focus is on the greatness of God, and from that understanding flows certain implications. Implications, Psalm 32 is helping us sort out. You see, confession is not only a way to become intimate with God, but it's also a byproduct of our intimacy with God. We don't worship confession, right? We worship God. And one of the ways we can worship God is by confessing our sins. This is even part of our liturgy as a church. Every Sunday morning, we did this earlier. The point is not just to give us something extra to do but to see the greatness of God, to believe he is who he says he is, and then to live that way. Are you seeing how, how when we learn about God that there are necessary implications for how we live? Does that make sense? Implications for how we relate to him. We desire to know this God better, to experience greater intimacy with this forgiving God. And as we get to know God better, we discover more glorious depths, more glorious grace toward us. That's what the rest of the psalm is now going to celebrate. And it celebrates one in particular. The greatness of our God just keeps getting greater. Let's read verses 6 through 7. Therefore, 
Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So as we've seen, because God is who he says he is, we should trust him and confess our sin. Verse 6 phrases, phrases it this way, as a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. But now there's a cash, a sense of urgency, isn't there? The psalmist urges those in relationship to God, the godly, to not wait before breaking our silence about our sin. Don't put it off. Don't think you'll just wait till Sunday because somehow Sunday is a more holy day of the week. Or don't just wait till the fall until those kids are back in school. Or don't just wait until you feel more penitential or wait until you feel the effects of the sin more strongly. The time is today. After all, the great waters are coming, so to speak. These waters that are coming signify trouble and difficulty. Simply enjoying, enjoying God's forgiveness and greater intimacy with him doesn't make our lives all of a sudden magically smooth with no trouble, does it? But God does protect his own. Last line of verse 6. Surely in the rush of great waters, they, the waters, will not reach him, the confessor. Now this doesn't mean we won't experience pain or difficulty, but it does mean that somehow God's protective presence will keep us from being washed away. This is made explicit in verse 7. Our forgiving God is also our protection. He is trustworthy when we feel like we are drowning. Rather than the rushing water surrounding us and taking us under, God surrounds us figuratively with shouts of deliverance. Again, we see this emphatic threefold repetition of words signifying God's gracious, protective presence. One noun, two verbs. Hiding place, preserve, surround. God is trustworthy. He's worth pursuing. He offers stability in a very unstable world. We confess to him and thus we grow in intimacy with him. Why? Why should we confess to him and pursue him? Because our God is a, is a trustworthy God. This is what Psalm 32 now celebrates. It's God's trustworthiness. We confess our sin and pursue intimacy with God because God is a forgiving and trustworthy God. This is near and dear to the psalmist's heart, and he's going to do his best to drive it home. Let's read verses 8 through 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Here, for one verse, verse 8, God himself now speaks. And he uses again this threefold pattern we've seen all along, again for emphasis. God will instruct, he will teach, he will counsel us. This is an explicit appeal for us to listen and to actually trust what's being said here. And again, we get a sense of intimacy. God himself will lead us. He will counsel us continually. He will be near. We are his own. And so what's the only conclusion we should draw? 
we are to wisely listen and receive God's counsel rather than foolishly go our own way, verse 9. We're not to be stubborn like a mule who refuses to be taught. We're not to be like a horse who doesn't have a sense to discern foolishness from wisdom and so needs to be forcibly pressured into taking the best path. Here's the sense of these verses in, in the form of question. Can we recognize the wisdom in confessing our sin to a God who offers true forgiveness? Can we recognize the counsel in drawing near to this trustworthy God before we feel like we are drowning in life's pains and difficulties? Can we learn to not remain silent about our sin and avoid the experiences of verses 3 through 4? After all, our God is a trustworthy God. Now, look at how Psalm 32, one last time, is going to reemphasize this, but from a different angle. Verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Unlike the foolish wicked, who do not trust in God, those who do are again surrounded by God. But this time, instead of it being shouts of deliverance, what is it? Is God's steadfast love. Now, we've seen this steadfast love repeatedly throughout the Psalms. It's a concept that is really, really important. It's this love that is loyal and faithful and covenantal, a love that God will never take away from his people. It's a love that could be trusted. It's a trustworthy love from a trustworthy God. We confess our sin and pursue intimacy with God because God is a forgiving and trustworthy God. Even when we sin. <laughs> Praise God that his love for you and me does not ebb and flow depending on how much or how little we sinned. God's steadfast love remains with us. If anybody should know that, it's David, right? Remember his famous sin that every generation after him knows that he committed? How would you, by the way, like to have your sin like on display that way? God commi uh, David committed adultery, and then he committed murder. This is David, whom God calls as a man after his own heart, that God loves dearly. This is David, who wrote most of the psalms we've studied so far this summer in the book of Psalms. And this is the same David who probably wrote the psalm that we're studying this morning. And it may be about this very sin of adultery and murder after he had some time to process it. See, David certainly knew the anguish that came as a result of his sin. Remember the story? But he never experienced God removing his steadfast love from him. Rather, David experienced God's forgiveness, even for adultery and murder. So what sin? Is there a sin that you're remaining quiet about because you don't think you could confess it because God surely couldn't forgive you for that. What sin have you never mentioned because you fear it may cause God to love you less, even just by putting words to it? What sin are you harboring willingly, taking the anguish of keeping it silent, because you're at least familiar with that pain, and it seems preferable over the unknown consequences of confessing it to God? My friend... Let me encourage you with all the confidence I possibly could based on the true word of God himself to confess your sin to God. 
trust him with it. Trust him that he will forgive you, not based on how badly you feel about it, but based on what Jesus accomplished for you on your behalf. Trust him that his steadfast love for you will never waver, no matter the depths of your sin. But if you don't trust Jesus to save you, if you don't know him, you do not have these glorious assurances that God forgives your sin. The good news of the Christian faith is that God forgives our sin and restores our relationship to him based on the work of Jesus alone and not our own efforts. But to receive Jesus' work on our behalf means we must trust him to save us. If that isn't you, if you're not even sure what I'm talking about, I would love to hear your story. Please come find me. I'll be up here afterwards. I know a lot of other men and women in this church who would love to hear your story as well if you're not comfortable with me. But please share your story. I want to hear it. The greatness of the God of the Bible is far beyond our ability to comprehend. It is this God that we desire to know better, and it is this God that Psalm 32 celebrates. Let's read the last verse, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Here's the final emphatic threefold repetition of the same idea with three different words. In response to who this God is, what are we to do? We're to be glad and rejoice and shout for joy. We are not to remain silent. No other response could be more appropriate. We have a God who forgives us. We have a God who doesn't allow us to become comfortable with our sin. We have a God who is trustworthy, both by surrounding us with protection and by his steadfast love. This is the picture of God in Psalm 32. How then do we live? We confess our sin and pursue intimacy with God because God is a forgiving and trustworthy God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. You don't change based on what we think or don't think about you, on what we feel or don't feel about you. You don't, you don't change. You're still God, and you are still as great and trustworthy and forgiving and powerful. You still surround your people with your steadfast love regardless, and we thank you for that. Our sin, if we have trusted you to save us, does not put a permanent sever in our relationship with us, because you're faithful. But when we sin, Father, we need to be healed. And you know that more than we ever could. And so I pray that you would not allow it to become comfortable with our sin. That you wouldn't take your grace for granted, so to speak. That you're gracious, and so it doesn't matter how much we sin. Why not just sin more so we experience your grace more? God, would you not allow us to think that way? It's not true. We need your grace, Father, to remain uncomfortable with our sin. So we ask for it. And God, we thank you for what you've already accomplished on our behalf. You sent your son, Jesus. He died for our sin, washing it away completely. And it's because of the fact we can't even pray to you this morning. And thank you for rising again from the dead. If you did not rise again, our faith is worthless. We're wasting our time this morning. So I thank you that you rose from the dead. We have so much to celebrate. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.